Our next reading from Scripture comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 22 to 38. Listen with me for God's word to us today. They came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to Jesus and begged him to touch the man. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him, Jesus asked him, Can you see anything? The man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on the man's eyes again. And he looked intently, and the man's sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Then Jesus sent him away to his home, saying, Do not even go into the village. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. Jesus asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And Jesus sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about it, about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake, for the sake of the gospel, will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Open our eyes that we might see, O oh Lord, what you have before us, what is within our hearts, what we want to see and what we need to see of you, of ourselves. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The much-anticipated field trip for third graders at Wallingford Elementary School, at least according to the first and then second grader who lived in our home several years back, 
is the trip to Crystal Cave near Cutstown in Berks County. Unfortunately, while Margaret had looked forward to this eagerly ever since she was a first grader, by the time she made it to third grade, the rest of the world had made it into pandemic lockdowns. And she was moving through the third grade on Zoom from her bedroom. Needless to say, there were no field trips that year. So we devised a plan for at this point, it had been nearly a year into lockdown. We knew by then about masking and distance, about outdoors as safer than indoors. And we were weeks away from first vaccination shots. So that is when we found ourselves, all four in our family, in a car on our way to Crystal Cave for a family field trip. Build as one of the oldest continually operated show caves, the story goes that Crystal Cave was discovered by two prospectors who were blasting for limestone on a Sunday morning, no less. And after a blast that morning, a dark, narrow hole opened up, leading into a steep hill. It became, quickly, quite the tourist destination, known for its milky white and abundant crystalline formations. Our then third and first graders were pleased that we had made the trek. Down into the cave we descended, led by a very knowledgeable and amiable guide, up and down and around, learning about all kinds of rock formations and how they came to be. And then, for the coup de grace, the time when they would turn out the lights. Now, if you have ever done one of these types of tours, it reminded me of when I was a child and went to Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico, you may have experienced this. They warn you how dark it will be. They count down so that no one is surprised. And then, complete and utter darkness. The kind that we city folk, frankly, we who live above ground have very little experience with even those who live with blindness. It is disconcerting, even for one like me, who has had some sense that this would all be well, still, it felt like the world shifts for a little bit. The light's off, your heart starts to pound a little, and the light's on, it's a deep sigh, it makes me wonder about the man in Bethsaida. It makes me wonder also about Peter. Did you notice? This morning, our stories are tied together by this phenomenon, sight. For the man who had the holy indignity of Jesus spit on his eye, it was a gradual seeing, a literal seeing. First, there was nothing but likely stray light, and then some form of int, maybe? Remember those large walking trees imagined by J.R.R. Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings? 
But then finally, once Jesus tried a second time, the people before the man came into focus, clear as day. Perhaps this was true for Peter, too, this gradual seeing, miracle after miracle, teaching after teaching, day after day, witnessing Jesus with others, healing, eating, seeing God in them, in the other, that few others were able or willing to notice. Chapters ago, Peter dropped his net to follow the man on the shoreline who beckoned, but only now, possibly, is he seeing clearly just what he has done. Perhaps before it was only a hunch, but now he's pretty certain those aren't people who look like trees. This is not just someone who looks like a messiah. So when Jesus asked them first, who do people say that I am? And then again, who do you say that I am? Peter gets the wordle right on the first guess. <laughs> because by then, it had become clear as day. You are the Messiah. How glorious it is when we think we know clearly what it is before us, who it is before us, when the next step feels obvious, when the treatment plan is clear, when our hunch is proven by the key words uttered. It's like the lights that pop back on down in the depths of utter darkness. We take a deep sigh. Ah, yes, there we still are. The kids are still standing six inches away. The walls are still dripping steadily with sediment, forming what humans might never see to completion. So what must it have felt like then to Peter when rather than affirm him, congratulate him, promote him to first disciple, Jesus first sternly orders him to be quiet and then almost immediately turns to all of his disciples and quite openly begins to speak of suffering and death. There go the lights again, this time with no warning and a strong possibility that we'll have to find our way out on our own. I can't imagine that it felt good. It never does when it feels like we've been wronged when the pathway that once looked clear has all of a sudden taken a sharp turn. The back and forth between Jesus and Peter in these few verses is revelatory, both for what Peter wanted Jesus to be and for who Jesus revealed himself to be. The tone is serious. Indeed, Jesus' response to Peter is the same as his response to the temptation of the devil in the desert, because Peter's desires were in direct contradiction to God's incarnation as the Messiah that the people needed. Peter saw the Messiah as the one who would rise to glory in this life. Peter saw the Messiah as the one who would overthrow the powers of the world in this life. 
Peter saw the Messiah as the one who would ensure victory and be crowned king in this life. Peter saw Jesus as the Messiah, but only as a blur of what that title really meant, like trees walking. Peter hadn't been looking intently until now. He wanted Jesus to cut it out on all this talk of rejection and suffering and death. Not because they didn't know this kind of suffering already. No, you see, the cross carried by those living under the occupation of Rome was already heavy with suffering, rejection, and death. But the Messiah was supposed to cure, be the cure for those ills, not the one to bear them. Jesus firmly rejects this, revealing himself instead as the Messiah willing to endure all of these things, including death, in order to offer to all the liberation of resurrection, hope. He knew that their cross was heavy, and he wanted to bear it with them, to bear it for them. But he needed them to have a real understanding of him first, because as those who follow him, they would need to continue to bear this too. They would need to continue on with eyes wide open, not for the Jesus they wanted, but for the Savior creation needed. Jesus makes a point here with his tone that he will speak for himself Rather than allow Peter to assume him as a militant savior, the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees to paint him with the broad brush of insurrectionist and heretic, the crowds to minimize him as a do-gooder, Jesus makes it very clear what he is and what he is not. What it means to choose sacrifice over self preservation. For the latter is not, nor has it ever been, the highest value in the kingdom of God. And yet, self-preservation, the care and keeping of our livelihoods, the making and careful curating of our specific identities in relationship to one another is so pervasive and so often what is expected, it has long been our habit. We can relate well to Peter. We use shortcuts to get to the full picture. Labels that when pieced together, we're sure will give us a full view of someone, even ourselves. Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, southerner, northerner, coastal, Heartland, Delco, or Philly, Generation X, Millennial, Boomer, Christian, Muslim, Jew, queer, straight, and on and on and on. The shortcut in our minds helping our hearts and our eyes to see and to make judgment, to linger or to move on, to accept or to write off. We have expectations set 
because it is easier to develop our own narrative for another person than to allow them to speak for themselves. It is easier to assume that we know than to learn that we didn't know the half of it. The recent movie American Fiction is a somewhat wry comedic take on this act of shortcutting. The story centers on Monk, an African-American novelist who has grown frustrated with a publishing industry that profits from quote-unquote black entertainment, relying on tired and offensive tropes such as the streetwise scrappy black kid who makes it despite all the odds. Under a pseudonym, Monk writes a book that leans fully into many of these tropes and sends it off to his publisher to prove a point. Much to his dismay, the book is optioned for more than anything else he has ever written and sends him into the midst of the hypocrisy he was trying to call out. Rather than allowing others to speak for themselves, indeed, rather than allowing ourselves to be fully known, we instead take up these shortcuts that keep us from the kinds of relationships that might lead us to want to sacrifice for the good of one another, to live in ways that benefit more than only ourselves, our families, our close circles of friends, our known communities. We also, much like the author in the movie, find that we can easily perpetuate the very acts of stereotyping, division, violence, injustice that we say we deplore. This is what Jesus is rebuking in Peter. The habits that keep us in the dark on the kingdom of God. The ways that keep us separate, valuing self-preservation over beloved community. For Jesus already knew that this life had its struggles, its hardships, its evil and death and depths of darkness. And he knew that in order to see fully the glory of God, his disciples would have to see him fully for who he was, for who the world needed, rather than what they assumed they wanted. Discipleship is never meant to be an easy task. This is what we come to again and again, particularly in this season of Lent, as we walk intently with Christ towards Jerusalem and towards the cross, who wills us to see him along the way, fulfilling every promise, revealing every truth he utters about himself and about God. The life of discipleship has always been about valuing people over ideologies and systems, rebuking in ourselves the tendency to shortcut our expectations of one another, trusting instead that God is working in each person to reform us in ways beyond even our own expectation of ourselves. This is serious business. We well know it in this time when it is much lighter cross to bear to turn the lights off and live down in the caves 
our own caves of self-righteousness and like-mindedness, forfeiting the life of the world for our own. The lies we tell ourselves, those we tell of others and to others, the shortcuts we take to demonize or laud only serve to deepen our animosity, injustice, and division. This is not our call, friends. Not at all. Not in any way. We must rebuke it. Our call is to be co-creators with God of a new heaven and a new earth. This means finding our way out of our unseeing, willful or not, with a string of lights or even just a small flashlight, by allowing others to speak for themselves, to tell us the truth of who they are and what they love and why they believe what they believe and what terrifies them and what gives them hope, and for us to be vulnerable to do the same, because then we are talking of gospel, of faith and hope and love and life and death. And then we are beginning to see one another. Then we are truly beginning to see Jesus. May it be so.